You know what my biggest fear is about this weekend? Um, my biggest fear was that I was going to trip coming up here. <laughs> and that's, that's the truth, by the way. And if I did, my wife Barbara would, you would have to constrain her <laughs> because she just has a knack to say, when the worst things happen in your life, she cracks up. So uh, thank you, Lord. I haven't tripped over these cables yet. Praise God. I was watching Alex last night, and Alex, you know, he kept coming close to the edge, and I'm going, this guy's crazy, man. One misstep, he's going he's gonna to fall right down. But all joking aside, I want to thank you for coming out to the conference, the Stand Firm Conference. I believe this is a crucial gathering of believers. I really do. It's crucial that we come together, that we encourage one another in the faith, right? That we build each other up in the most holy faith of God. So I'm glad you're here. And I, I want you to anticipate for today a great day. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a long day. But let me tell you something. If you weren't here, what would you be doing? cutting your grass, watching TV. It's a Saturday, right? Going shopping. So invest. We're going to invest into the Word of God. And we're anticipating that the Spirit of God is going to move. He's going to move. This is not just academic. This is, we need this. I was talking to somebody earlier this week, and I was making the point, and the point was this. I said, you know, if we ever had to wait um, if God had to wait for us to be perfect before he would bring revival, there'd never be a revival, right? Because none of us are perfect. But when does God bring revival? God brings revival when his people are desperate. What is desperate? Well, the person who's driving, uh, who's drowning, when the, when the life preserver is tossed to them, they're going to do everything they can to get to that life preserver. The person who is thirsty, they're going to do everything they can to quench that thirst. We as believers in Christ, we need to be desperate for a move of God. A genuine, an authentic, a spontaneous move of God. That's our pursuit, and that's what we're looking to do. My sermon today is stand firm in the faith. And believers in Jesus Christ face many, many, many challenges today. I don't have to tell you what they are. You know what they are if you're a follower of Christ. Our faith is being threatened. Our faith is being threatened by a godless government that is following a godless culture. And when, when there's a godless culture and godless leadership, it has always always throughout history has produced major problems for the church. Persecution, antagonism. And we live in a day right now of cultural antagonism, don't we? We live in a day and age that there is a surge of hostility toward anything that is Christian. There's a surge of hostility to anything that is right. As a matter of fact, what are we seeing today? The culture is flipping. What, is, what used to be called wrong is now being called right. The things that were the culture 
previously had said, well, this is not the right way to do it, is now being done today. Right? The world is upside down. It has flipped. And in Psalm, in Psalm 11, verses 2 and 3, the psalmist says this. He said, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Did you hear that? The wicked bends the bow. And who are they looking to shoot at? They're looking to shoot at those that are upright in heart. And then he goes on to say, if the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? I'm going to tell you something. We gather here at the Stand Firm Conference to answer that very question. What do the righteous do? And what the righteous do is they stand firm in the faith. They stand firm in the faith. They stand firm with the gospel. They stand firm to the person of Jesus Christ, unwavering. And when we stand firm for Christ, and this is, this is the first takeaway I want you to have. When we stand firm for Christ, guess what? Christ stands firm for us. And so if you don't take anything away from this conference, I want you to take that. Because if we stand firm for Christ, Christ will indeed stand firm for us. You know, throughout history, there have been many examples of men of God who have stood firm in the faith. And one such person was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was one person who stood firm in the faith. Martin Luther was so determined to stand firm in the faith that on April 18, 1521, he was asked to appear at the Diet of Worms. Now, diet does not mean he was going to lose weight, right? <laughs> diet means council. He was called to the council at Worms. And he was to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, the Spaniard Charles V, to recant, by the way. That was the sole purpose, to recant of his 95 thesis that he posted on the wall at the church at Wittenberg, right? So he was called to recant of that, but even more so, he was called to recant of the doctrine of justification by faith, that God justifies the unrighteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. When pressed to recant, Luther replied, My conscience is captive to the word of God. To do against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now, I just want to tell you what was at stake. What was at stake was his very life. That's what he was, was at stake. And notice the words of Luther. Luther says, 
My conscience is captive to the word of God. Is your conscience captive to the word of God? If we are going to stand in the faith of Jesus Christ, the first place it must begin is that we are fully, fully persuaded by the word of God and that our, our minds would be captivated. And notice what he goes on to say. He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God to do against conscience. Well, basically, it's not something we're going to do. What is happening in the world today? What is happening in the world today, what's happening in the church today, is people are actually transgressing their conscience. Their lives are no longer guided by the word of God. Many people who profess the name of Jesus Christ are not fully persuaded in this word, they're not fully persuaded. So what happens when you're not persuaded? There's a tendency to bend. There's a tendency to shift. There's a tendency to say, well, that's not really important. Let me tell you something. If you're going to stand firm in the faith, if you're going to stand for Christ, if the culture is going to mount a cultural offensive, which it is doing, against you, against us, against the church, you will not stand in your own strength if you are not fully persuaded by the very word of God. Now, Mike, my brother Mike warned you, right? He said, hey, if word of God's not for you, you may want to leave, all right? But what we do at Calvary is we go through the word of God. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go through the Word of God. And we're going to go through, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're going to go through a pretty familiar passage. So I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be looking today at verses 10 and 11. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. I want to give you... First, a background, a brief background to the epistle written to the Ephesians, and then we will jump into the Word of God and explore the text. The epistle of the Ephesians was written by Paul himself. It was written from a Roman um, prison. He was in prison for this at this time. And basically what was going on in the world? Well, the Roman Empire was the reigning power in the world. And its power was on full display. As a matter of fact, the Romans believed that their pagan gods gave them the will to go out and to conquer and to subjugate everybody. So Ephesus is, was in what is today modern-day Turkey. That's where Ephesus was. Paul had visited Ephesus. Paul had planted a church in Ephesus. And under the leadership of Paul, it grew. As a matter of fact, they had an all-star cast of pastors. An all-star cast. Started with the Apostle Paul. Went on to Timothy. Apollos came and pastored some time at Ephesus. 
Later on, the apostle John would pastor at Ephesus, followed by one of his disciples, Polycarp. Good stock, really good preachers, top-notch people that are there, right? And as I mentioned, it is written about eight, uh, from a Roman prison in about 61 A.D. Paul is writing to a number of churches. As a matter of fact, written at this time, not only was the letter to the Ephesians, but also to those in Colossae, those in Philippi, and the epistle of Philemon. Now, something that you need to know about Ephesus. Ephesus was a wicked city. Wicked city. Ephesus had the temple of Artemis there. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was the Roman god Diana, the god of love. The temple of Artemis had temple prostitutes, both male and female. And in the evening, they would descend upon the city and they would offer themselves, they would offer their bodies as an act of worship to Artemis, the goddess of love. That's what they would do. So you can imagine, right? This is wickedness. To be a Christian in a city like that is crazy. We see in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, because so many were coming to Christ that the people who made the pagan gods revolted and created a riot and arrested Paul. That's how wicked it is. Now Paul writes to the church and he's writing to the churches to encourage them. Stand. Stand for the gospel. Stand for Jesus Christ. Do not waver. Yeah, you'll pay a price, but be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. And there were also those, if you read the apostle of, uh, of uh, if you read the epistle of Ephesians, there were those that were introducing heresies. Paul mentions them in 1 Timothy, Hymenaeus, and Alexander that were going out introducing heresy, which is why the first three chapters of the epistle of Ephesians is doctrine. It's truth. Paul gives them truth in the first three chapters, and then in the last three chapters, he gives them the application of that truth. Now, the last thing I want to give you on the background to the book of Ephesus is this. Ephesus is the church in Revelation 2 that the Lord commends them for their faithfulness. The Lord commends them for their work. The Lord commends them that they, they test those who call themselves apostles and they found they're not and they dismiss them. But the concern of the Lord was you have lost your first love. I want you to note that for a second because you could be so super busy in religious activity, you could be so busy in service, and yet your heart could be far from the master. This is what happened to Ephesus. The warning of the Lord in Revelation chapter 2 was what? Repent. Repent before I remove your candlestick. In other words, I'm going to shut the church. We know from history they did not repent because the Lord actually removed the church at Ephesus. So this is the background. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 10. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. Verse 10 sets the context. It sets the context for the rest of chapter 6. Now, you might know chapter 6, right? You know it's the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. Everybody, you hear so many sermons about spiritual warfare. Put on the armor of God. But chapter, verse 10, sets the context. And what we see immediately is a powerful Christian truth. This is a powerful Christian truth. And if you are taking notes, you may want to note this. That truth is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are one with Christ. I want you to realize that. We are one with Christ. That is not merely a positional truth. You know what a positional truth is? A positional truth is a doctrinal truth. So it's not merely a positional truth. It is a literal truth. What do I mean? We are one with Christ. Christ's life is our life. Christ's power is our power. Christ's victory is our victory. Christ's truth is our truth. And Christ's way is our way. And lastly, lastly, note this. Christ's strength is our strength. Now this sets the precedent for the rest of what the Apostle Paul is going to speak. Now we know, we know this, don't we? We know we cannot stand in our own natural ability and our own natural strength, right? Why? Because we're creatures of the fall. We are fallen creatures. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned and sin pervaded the human race. And we need a savior. We need to be saved from sin, saved from the consequence of sin, saved from the judgment of sin. And the Lord knew that. And so what do we need to stand spiritually? We need a supernatural transcendent power. That's what we need. A supernatural transcendent power. And that power comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Turn in your Bibles real quick. Keep yourself in Ephesians chapter 6. But I want you to turn into Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Some of you may not even have to turn there. You know exactly where I'm going with this. Philippians 4.13, the favorite verse of all athletes. There you go. You know, they use the eye black. They put, you know, Philippians 4.13, Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. Right? That's not new news to anybody, right? We're all good with that? Praise God. Now, I believe that we miss a very profound truth found in Philippians 4.13. Paul is not writing, I want to clarify this, he is not writing to encourage the believers of their potential strength. Neither is he writing to the believers to motivate them. 
You know, hey, you could do this. You could do this. The little engine that could. I can do it. I can do it. That's not what Paul is doing here. As a matter of fact, Paul is not writing to encourage believers of their strength. The amount of strength that we possess, it does not even matter. It does not matter. What matters is the source of strength. That's what matters. What matters is the source of strength and that that source is Jesus Christ. He is the source of that strength. It is through Christ who strengthens believers. As a matter of fact, that word strength, that word strong there, means to empower. It is strength through union with Christ. Strength through the union with Christ. Paul reminded believers here, back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, what's the first reminder? Finally, be strong not be strong yourself. Be strong in the Lord. Where is that strength? It comes from the union with Christ. Christ's strength is our strength, the believer's strength. And as believers, that strength comes to us as a means of grace from God. It is a means of grace. It is supernatural in its origins. Let me say that again. It is supernatural in its origins. That means of grace descends from the throne of God. This union comes from a discipline of grace that we are engaged in specifically what? Specifically prayer. Specifically the study the meditation, and the contemplation of the Word of God. Those of you from Calvary, you know I tell you this all the time, and it may sound heresy to some of you. Don't read your Bibles. Meditate. Contemplate. Study your Bibles. Dig into your Bibles. What is the author trying to say? So many people say, I read eight chapters today. And you go, what would you learn? Uh, I don't know. You are to tear apart the Word of God. You are to dig deep into the Word of God. You are to read your Word of God in context. And then you are to contemplate what is the Spirit saying through the Word of God. There's one other, ele uh, one other element of grace, and that is fellowship, and service within the body of Christ. Amen. Last night, Brother McFarland said, we all have a job. We all have a responsibility. Listen, probably the greatest crime that is occurring in the church today, the greatest tragedy in the church today, is the disregard of the church by many who profess the name of Christ. They say, I don't have to go to church. 
I don't need this. You know, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Hey, if you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know what the Word of God says? The Word of God says that you have been changed. The old things have passed away, and now everything has become new. The Word of God said if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are regenerated. You're no longer that old man. All those things have passed away. Everything has become new. God has caused you to be born again. The greatest thing I love to hear are the testimonies of the saints. When the testimonies of the saints, that they don't jump up and down in what they used to be, but what they'll tell you is, I used to do this. I used to do drugs. I used to be an alcoholic. I used to be all these other different things. But then I came to Christ, and Christ changed my life. And without change, how is there validity? To your claim. Jesus put it this way, and I love it the most. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, I want you to note Jesus' words, for they shall be satisfied. Do you think it's any coincidence that Jesus uses two of the most physiological responses to the human body? Jesus didn't say, hey, blessed are the ones who go to church. He didn't say, blessed are the ones who sing hymns. He didn't say, blessed are the ones who go to this or go to that. What did he say? Blessed are those who hunger. Who hunger. We don't know hunger in this nation like the rest of the world knows hunger. We don't know what it is to go two, three weeks without a meal. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. I don't as you could tell by the shape of my body. <laughs> but when you hunger, there's a burning desire for food. The hunger seeks to be satisfied. What satisfies the hunger? Food, nourishment. But Jesus didn't end it there. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, the strongest physiological need and response in the human body. You can go weeks without food. You can only go a few days without water. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What righteousness? God's righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you love the Lord God that you sit there and you go, God, I want more. I want more. I want more of the person of Jesus Christ. I want more from your word. Lord, I want the power of God. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. I want the anointing so that when I talk to my unsafe friends, when I talk to my unsafe family, it comes with an authority and an unction from God himself. This is what Paul's talking about. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I want to talk a little bit more about this strength that he's talking about. I think we see a good, a really good example of this in Paul's uh, thorn in the flesh passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Just, just turn there real quick. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. We recently did this on on Bible study, but I think it's really, really relevant here. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is the Apostle Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. But he has said to me, my grace is sufficient. What's the, what's the context? The context is Paul is telling the church, hey, I was given a thorn in the flesh. I was given a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And of this I entreated the Lord three times. You know what he entreated the Lord? Take this away. Lord, take this away. And in verse 9, we see the Lord's response. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now, I want you to see this. There are two words in this verse that talk about that strength from Christ. The first one is grace. Now we know what grace is, right? It's God's unmerited favor. Isn't that what we hear grace is? God unmerited favor. And yes, that is true. But the definition of grace is broader. It's not only God's unmerited favor, but it's God's enablement for living. In other words, what God has called you to, God will give you the ability and the power to accomplish. Let me share something real quick. This Stand Firm conference all started from a simple statement. On our Tuesday night Bible study with those that meet with us from different parts of the country, I said, wouldn't it be cool if we could all come together and worship together? And the response was so enthusiastic. I said, okay, we're going to do it. Uh, leave it to me. I'll figure out the time. A few days later, I said to my wife, I said, hey, why do we got to limit it to just, you know, just the folks on Tuesday Night Bible Study? Let's open it up. I had no idea how to do any of this stuff. Neither did anyone else. This is nine, ten months of prayer, of preparation to bring it together. Was this Mark? Was this Calvary? No shot. I'm an idiot. There's no way this can come from me. All right? This is the Lord. Amen. You are here by divine providence. Amen. You are here because God has ordained for you to be here. Amen. Every single one of you. That's an example of that enablement that God gives through His grace. And that grace is a supernatural, Holy Spirit, imparted gift in time of need. In time of need. God does this today with believers. But I'll say something. To experience that, you got to be a believer in Jesus Christ. you got to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, one must by faith entrust themselves completely and wholly to the work of grace and the work of Christ on the cross. One must believe that they know that their circumstances, God works them all for good to those who love the Lord and who are called according to His purposes. You know, we say in our church, faith is entrusting yourself to the plan 
the purpose and the person of Christ. That's what faith is, right? If you have faith in Christ, you're entrusting yourself to the plan of God. You're entrusting yourself to the purpose of that plan. And in order to entrust yourself to the purpose, you must entrust yourself to the very one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ. Now Paul later states, he says, power is perfected in weakness. Now that's another word, another key word there. Power, it's the Greek word dunamis. You often hear people say, oh, that's dynamite. It's not dynamite. It's where we get the root word, the root of the English word for dynamite. But dunamis literally means it is the power to achieve by applying the Lord's inherent abilities. It is the power to achieve by applying the Lord's inherent abilities. Power through God. Remember what I said at the very onset. Christ's strength is our strength. So Paul says this power, this power is perfected in weakness. With grace comes the power through the Holy Spirit. Power for living, power for enduring, power for persevering, and power for conquering and standing firm in the faith. That's what comes with this grace. And there's a beautiful ending to this. And the ending here is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is this, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That this power may dwell in me. Now, I love this. I, I don't think this is seen. The term dwell in me literally means to pitch one's tent. To pitch one's tent. What does that mean? What is the Apostle Paul saying? Paul is saying that that power, that power of God would pitch its tent in me. And by the way, it's a permanent dwelling. It's a permanent dwelling. It's not a temporal dwelling. The power of God, when one is in Christ, Christ pitches his tent. And that power resides within the believer. You know, the, 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 the verb tense is in the aorist tense. The aorist tense is basically the past tense. It just says something happened. It doesn't tell you how it has happened. It's just something has happened. So if you think about it, technically, something happened to the believer. What happened to the believer? Christ came and tabernacled among us. He came and pitched his tent. The Holy Spirit resides within the believer. The power of God is given to the believer. Now we can reevaluate Ephesians 6:10 and what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus. Finally be strong not in yourselves, don't be strong in your own wisdom, don't be strong in your own ability, don't be strong in your own education. No, be strong in the power of the Lord. And in the strength of his might, his encouragement is to be strong in Christ's strength, which then sets the tone for the rest of Ephesians chapter 6. And let me share something. It also sets the tone for us.
at this conference. Church, we are called to stand firm in the faith. And we do this not in our own strength, but by God's enabling grace and power. Now, I just want to say something to you. To truly experience the strength of Jesus Christ, one must come to know Christ. Can we agree to that? You must come to know Christ. It's one thing to claim faith in Christ. Anybody can say they're a Christian. But it is another thing to possess Christ. Sadly, many profess to know him but never experience the fullness of his power. We must seek to know him personally. For only then we can truly live a victorious Christian life. Now, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Word of God commands you to repent, to trust yourself completely, to turn from your sins, and to put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, all have sinned. Guess who sinned? I sinned. Guess who sinned? Brother Alex has sinned. Guess who sinned? Anybody who's got the most degrees on the wall have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's just a basic truth. I mentioned our parents were sinners. And their parents were sinners. But you know what's the great antidote to sin? What Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. He makes this statement. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came to die for sinners, of which I was the foremost. I was the chief of sinners. And it costs his great passage there in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that once you commit your heart to Jesus Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. You haven't done that. I urge you, I beg you to do that today. I beg you to do it right now. And just speak to the Lord quietly. Anyway, we're going to move on. Ephesians 6.11. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. It is this strength of Christ that Paul's referring to here when he tells the believers, stand. Stand firm. Don't waver against the schemes of the devil. There's an interesting, interesting word, that word stand. It means to place myself, to stand ready, to stand firm. Used here in Ephesians 6.11 and again in Ephesians 6.13, I want to give you a, a, a taste of this. It is the figure, not of one who's like strapping on the armor and is taking their place in the line and you know, just waiting for the enemy to attack. That's not what this context is. The context here is critical. This is critical. The context here, the image that's being presented here, is it is one who is standing who has vanquished their enemy. In other words, 
They have endured the attack. The attack came. And they emerged victorious. They are now standing over their conquered enemy. They have not given ground. They have not budged. The enemy had been defeated. And now, fully empowered and fully armored, they now stand over the enemy. Conquerors. Strong. They were tested and they did not fail. They were attacked and they did not over, were not overcome. They were tried, but they did not compromise. They stood firm, rooted and grounded, and held the ground for the Lord. When the Lord speaks about stand, stand firm in the faith, that is what the Lord is talking about. When Paul talks about put on the armor of God, that's a one-time job. You put it on and it stays on. You don't come home and say, oh, what a hard day at spiritual warfare. Oh, let me take off the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. Let me loosen this belt of truth. That's not what he's talking about. We arm up. We arm up in Christ and we stay armed in Christ. You know when we get to take that armor off? When the day we hear the trumpet sound and the Lord comes and it's like, Lord, I don't need the armor anymore. That's the simple truth. Arm up. Stand firm. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. The image of a victorious warrior. Not a beaten, dragged out, oh, here they come again. I got to do this one more time. We see similar instruction in, 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 in Ephesians 6.13 where, where Paul writes this, Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? Why do you take up the armor of God? That you may be able to resist in the evil day. My goodness, this is the evil day. We talked about wrong being called right, right being called wrong. What do we need to do? We need to stand. I want to be crystal clear. I'm not talking about you know, Christian militant, uh, militancy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Christian faith rooted on the word of God, confident in this word. There's so many things in the word of God. You know, you get people going. You, you get well-meaning Christian people going. And, you know, oh, well, we, you know, we really need to look at what the Bible says, you know, about this. We need to take a look. We don't need to take a look. The Bible says it. It's crystal clear. There's no ambiguity. You know who creates the ambiguity? The other people who are wavering and they're waffling. So if you listen to the liberal, the liberal Bible critic, uh, critics out there, well, you know, we really need to examine the issue of marriage. No, you don't. My goodness, look from Genesis. Go all the way to the Bible to the end of Revelation. Guess what? Here's a bulletin. It's not ambiguous. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, we got to look at the issue of gender. No, we don't. Even Jesus commented on that. He said in the beginning he created them male and female. Male and female he created them. It's not ambiguous. We don't have to reinterpret it. We don't need a whole audience of people with PhDs and everything else sitting together. Oh, well, did he really mean that? I don't know if he meant it. I always say to myself, I love Acts 4.13. It's a very dear verse to me. 
Acts 4.13 talking about Peter and John when they appeared before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 4.13 it says that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes and the members of the Sanhedrin about Peter and John, he said when they saw that these were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled as them being with Jesus. I said, Lord, there's hope for me. I'm not the only idiot you ever called. Praise God. But you know what? God said it. It's true. That's as far as you have to think. God said it, and it is true. In Ephesians 6.13, he says that you may resist in the evil day. I love this word, resist. It means to take a complete stand against. Take a 180 position. This is what he's calling believers to. Take a 180 position. Refuse to be moved. What do we need to do? Are we followers of Christ? Then we must refuse to be moved. And he says this as well. That you may stand against the schemes. You know the word, the Greek word there for schemes is where we get the word method in English. That's where you get it. it in, what, it, what it basically defines is a preset method that the enemy uses to manipulate and to trick. That's what it means. It has a measure of craftiness in this. That means that our enemy doesn't come just merely with full frontal assaults. Hey, here I come, I'm going to overwhelm you. Well, you can't overwhelm me. You know why? Because you're vanquished. Christ's victory is my victory. Christ's strength is my strength. You cannot do that. So what is the enemy going to do? I'm going to come in a different way. I'm going to manipulate your mind. Oh, let's look at the Word of God. Let's reinterpret this. Let's, let's impose a meaning upon that. But why are we to stand firm? We are to stand firm against the schemes, against the wiles of the enemy. You know, the Apostle Paul writes that believers in Ephesus, that they are to stand with resolve, they are to stand with determination, that we are, we, the believers, are not to give any ground whatsoever. Believers in Christ are called to stand. Stand in the faith. Refuse to be moved. Amen. And you know what? It's not just in Ephesians where he's written this. He's written this in other apostles, to other epistles. To the church at Corinth, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive which also you stand. To the church at Galatia, he writes in Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. To the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. To the church at Thessalonica, he wrote this in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 
So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by the word of mouth or by letter from us. And I'm going to tell you something today. The call goes out today by the Holy Spirit. It cries out to every believer in Jesus Christ everywhere. Stand firm in the faith. Do not budge. Do not move. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm against all compromise and everything of the heart. Stand firm as a conqueror. Stand victorious in Christ over the vanquished foes of the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Stand firm over it. Take your rightful position in Christ. Stand triumphant and secure in the knowledge of the gospel and Jesus Christ. I promise you I'm going to close. All right? Amen. Listen, there is a call going out to every believer everywhere. Had a good conversation with Brother McFarlane in the car coming back from the airport yesterday where we talked about this very issue and the necessity for a clear call of the gospel to go forth. There is a necessity. We are believing God for revival. We are believing God to move. Why? We need the revival fire of God So to do so takes more than our own strength and our own resolve. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's the last portion of scripture you can look at, but if you look at Jude 1, verses 24 to 25. Jude writes, and I love this, I love this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Man, we could stop right there and do a whole message. I promise I won't. But we could stop right there and do a whole message. To him. To him. To who? To Christ. Who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. My brothers and sisters, to stand and stay strong in Christ, we need the revival power of God. I don't know about you. I'm thirsty. I don't know about you, but I'm hungering for more. I want more of Christ. You know what? I don't want to see a defeated church, nor do I want to see defeated Christians. I want to see other believers, other Christians, who stand strong over the vanquished foes of their enemy. We must desperately, desperately Seek God's face. And let me share something. We need to repent for indifference. We need to repent of coldness to God and to the gospel. Let me tell you something else. We need to repent of intellectualism of the scriptures. There are so many people that could quote chapter and verse 
And they wouldn't know the Holy Spirit if he hit them with a two-by-four. We need to take the word from the head and apply it to the heart. We need to be men and women of the word. It's not what we say, it's what we do and how we live. I'm so tired of all the unnecessary arguments over this, over that, and the other thing. Hey, how about we just roll forward in the name of Christ? And we start moving forward and take back the land that the enemy has robbed. The thief is a robber. He's coming in and he's creating chaos. Stand firm, church. Now it is the time to do so. Let us turn to Christ. Let us repent of all sin and earnestly cry out to God for His mercy and His grace. We need a revival. We need a revival of God. And I'll tell you what. Christ will make us stand. He will. He'll make us stand. And He will, as Jude said, keep us from stumbling. Listen, while we labor, and I hope you're out there laboring. You laboring for Christ? Seriously, are you laboring or are you just kicking back? You go to church, you kick back and say, oh boy, that message was great. Oh, that message stunk. Oh, I got nothing out of this today. What do you do? Are you laboring? Is it work? Are you sharing the gospel with those you love? Are you brokenhearted over those that don't know the gospel and may spend an eternity in judgment in hell? Man, that's got to bother us. That's got to bother us to action. While we labor for the faith, while we endure, while we persevere, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will keep us from standing. Remember, Christ's strength is our strength. He causes us to stand firm. He causes us to stand triumphant over our foes. And He will cause us. This is the most beautiful thing. He will cause us to stand confident before the throne of God. You know, we sang this last song, Before the Throne of God. That's, that's like one of my favorite, absolute favorite hymns. And I love the stanza that says this, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of all the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the holy, the righteous, God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him, to look on Christ, and pardon me. Those are life-changing words, brothers and sisters. Bow your head in a word of prayer with me. Blessed Most Holy Father, How magnificent you are. 
how merciful you are. Your word tells us that you will not always strive with man. But Father, yet there is still grace available. Father, we cry to you, have mercy. We are desperate, oh God. We are dry, oh God. We're hungry, oh God. Some of us may be able to say, as the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul pants after thee, O God. I search for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But now we're praying, O God, send forth the rain, O God. We're praying as Elijah, Lord, will you not rend the heaven and come down? And so, Father, I pray that you would hear our cries. As we call to you, Lord, send forth the rain, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.